Public Health Informatics is the science and the art of taking raw data and turning them into useful information for health policies and programs. It takes all those data out there and turns them into knowledge of how people can live healthier lives. But how does this process work? My name is Jessica Hill, and I work at the Public Health Informatics Institute in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is my quest to learn about informatics and how it's made people's lives better. How has it made my life better? And really, why does it matter? So I'm ready. Inform me, informatics. Hi, this is Jessica Hill. In April 2016, I had the very good fortune of attending the National Meeting of the American Immunization Registry Association, also called ERA. I attended a lot of great sessions at ERA, and I even led one myself, and one of the presentations really jumped out at me. Soda Seti from the Minnesota Immunization Information Connection spoke about the ways her department used immunization information system data to explore questions related to health equity. Her presentation was called, Using IIS and Vital Statistics Data to Measure Racial Ethnic Immunization Coverage Disparities in Minnesota. So the analysis not only provided a clearer picture of differences in immunization rates among populations within Minnesota, it also led the Minnesota Department of Health to engage in new community outreach activities. As I was listening to Soda's presentation, I was thinking, wow, this is informatics in action. We have to make this into a podcast. So I was so very grateful when Sita agreed to sit down with me the next day. Without further ado, here's our conversation. So Sita, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Um, And would you uh, tell us a little bit about your job at Minnesota? Sure, I'm actually the AFIX coordinator for the Minnesota Department of Health Immunization Program. So primarily my job is to administer the CDC AFIX program, you know, quality improvement at the clinic level, looking at immunization coverage rates for uh, those clinics that are enrolled in our Vaccines for Children program. But uh, with our new emphasis at MDH on health equity, which I will touch on a little later as we go forward in this conversation, I've had the opportunity to get into a lot of analysis uh, looking at gaps in immunization coverage based on race and ethnicity categories. So one of the one of the great parts about working at the Minnesota Department of Health is that targeting and eliminating health disparities is just a huge major organization-wide objective for the whole department. And our commissioner has had a lot to do with that. He helped establish the Center for Health Equity at MDH in 2013 and has made advancing health equity an essential goal for a healthy Minnesota. And is MDH Minnesota Department of Health? Yes, it okay. is. Yeah, that's probably what I'll just keep calling it throughout the rest of this podcast. Perfect. <laughs> Mick is our Minnesota Immunization Registry. Uh, we uh, decided to focus on looking at immunization rates within our Somali community. They're a, a very large minority group. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons we decided to focus on immunization rates within that community was because of some increasing anecdotal reports from our immunization providers saying that some Minnesota Somali families were refusing the MMR vaccine for their 12-month-old children. 
these hesitancy issues um, have been around, like floating around for a while, but they really came to the forefront in the summer of 2008. Okay. A local news network featured a story about Somali parents who were concerned that there was a high rate of autism amongst Somali children enrolled in the Minneapolis Early Childhood Special Education programs. Um, so during that story, you know, they, they, they were getting quotes from families and things like that. And one of the Somali parents came out and said, oh, it's the vaccines. Oh. So that was um, that was troubling. You know, that's definitely a misperception that yeah. we've been battling for so long that vaccines cause autism. But it was clear that this was a major concern for this community, and we wanted to meet it head on and try to address those concerns. So the immunization program at the Department of Health listened to the concerns of Somali parents that they were seeing the special ed child uh, classrooms just filled with Somali children. So uh, the Department of Health reviewed the enrollment data for that program, just to learn a little bit more. And in 2009, we did report and found that the enrollment data did show higher numbers of Somali children enrolled in this program program compared to non-Somali children. Mm -hmm. However, there were a lot of caveats and limitations that were just not well understood when the those study results were communicated. It was it was just lost. It wasn't just the Somali community misunderstanding it either. Mm -hmm. it, it was the way that the study was communicated about in general by uh, the local and actually national media. Mm -hmm. And a couple of parent advocates were quoted as saying that autism rates were almost six times higher in the Somali community, and that's that's simply not the case. Mm -hmm. It's just it was a massive information tangle. It was hard to communicate. It. I guess it would also be helpful to say that there's lots of parents across the country that are having these oh, yeah. like discussions and, and it's certainly not specific to Minnesota but no and not to this community and, either yeah, yeah so in that 2009 study I was talking about it just kind of added fuel to that fire you know yeah. we couldn't address those misconceptions in the right way. So we actually started to hear about even more reports from primary care providers about Somali parents refusing the MMR vaccine. Also like all 12 month shots, so including varicella, because you know, it was just the point in time mm -hmm. that they were concerned about and that happened to, those happened to be the vaccines at that point. And on top of all that, in 2011, things really came to a head because we had a measles outbreak in Minnesota in which eight of the 21 cases were of Somali descent. And this prompted the specific data analysis project to look at where the gaps were in immunization coverage for MMR specifically, but we eventually expanded it to all vaccines to look at Somali children and non-Somali children. Okay, time out. Seda and I talked a lot about the methodology of this project, and I'm going to try to give you a basic overview. The main question was whether children of Somali descent born in Minnesota, that's children with at least one parent who is Somali, had different vaccine coverage rates at 24 months of age as compared to children of non-Somali descent born in Minnesota in the same year. The plan was look at all the babies born in Minnesota in a given year, then group them into babies of Somali descent and babies of non-Somali descent, and look to see if when those babies turn two years old, if there's a difference in the vaccine coverage rates. You'll hear Sutter refer to any difference as a gap in coverage rates. Seems pretty straightforward. But when they looked at the data in the Minnesota IAS, they found that the fields for race ethnicity were often missing. And on top of that, the information that was in those fields, descriptions like white Caucasian, African American, Hispanic, weren't going to be able to tell the team whether one or both of a baby's parents were Somali. So to get more specific information, the IIS needed to work closely with vital statistics. 
Why? Because that information was on the baby's birth certificates. So once Soda and her team had all the information, they compared the coverage rates for babies born in 2004 and then 2005 and right on up to the babies born in 2013. Because babies born in 2013 turned two in 2015, which is the last year for which there's complete data. So that's a lot. But if you're interested in learning even more about the methodology, we put a link on our website to Soda's original presentation at ERA. And you can also see the graphs that she's about to explain. Okay, time in. Take it away, Sita. So that way we had race, ethnicity, distinguish who's Somali, who's not Somali, and we had the immunization record as well. And then we ran the up-to-date rates for up-to-date by 24 months for each of the childhood vaccines. We were you know, mostly interested in the MMR and then the varicella rates, but we decided to look at all childhood vaccines across the board just to see if the, there was any other gap that would show up. And then we compared the rates for each birth cohort and each category, you know, children of Somali descent versus children of non-Somali descent to, to see if there is a disparity between the two groups. And we did that for every year. So what what did you find? There is a gap in coverage between children of Somali descent and children of non-Somali descent for MMR vaccine and also for varicella vaccine. And uh, I know this is the podcast, so you can't really see the graph here, but I'm just going to walk through it and hopefully I'll paint a picture just with my words. So there's actually fairly similar coverage between the children of Somali descent and the children of non-Somali descent until 2006. So, you know, we're going along until 2007 where there's a slight drop for the Somali children. And then in 2008, it drops dramatically. In 2006, it looks like their up-to-date rate was 87%. 2007 is 84. In 2008, it slips 14% to 70% coverage for those two-year-old children. Wow, in a span of two years. In a span of one year. In a span of one year. Okay, wow. Yeah, and then it keeps going down every year after that, all Mm -hmm. the way up until 2013. And in 2008, that was the same year that the Somali community's widespread concern about autism was made public through that local news story I Mm -hmm. talked about right in the beginning. And the rate for MMR coverage for the Somali, the children of Somali descent, each of their birth cohorts, continues to plunge all the way to the present Mm -hmm. day. Oh, it's still. Well, I mean, to 2013. So for the children born in 2013, since we're now in 2016, everybody born in 2013 would have turned two. I see. So by the end of this year, I'll be able to take a look at everybody born in 2014 and see whether or not that still remains true for the two-year-old children. What percentage of those children have had one dose of the MMR by the time they turn two? Yes. 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 Interesting. So the graph is pretty dramatic. The people who are of non-Somali descent, 88% of them have a dose of MMR by the time they're two but only 45% of children who are of Somali descent are immunized with one dose of MMR by the time they're two. Definitely leaves the Somali community's most vulnerable members in danger from another measles outbreak. Yeah, so. like the one that had happened in 2011? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Were those statistically significant? Is it? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the drops in coverage and I think We published a staff in pediatrics paper in July of 2014. The drops in coverage, uh, both for MMR and varicella, the 2008 drops, were statistically significant, Mm -hmm. yes. The downward trend continues for MMR. 
But it doesn't seem that parents, or Somali parents, have an issue with other vaccines. Mm-hmm. DTaP and pneumococcal conjugate vaccine rates seem to be comparable to the rest of the population for children of Somali descent. So it, was it seems to be particular vaccine. Yeah, it seems to be very vaccine specific. Mm-hmm. So it's not like all immunizations are bad. There's not that perception mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. It's just this particular vaccine. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it was good to see that the rest of the rates do still remain the similar to the rest of the population. Yeah. That was that was reassuring. So I guess through through these analyses, there was sort of a perception that from from talking with providers, there was a perception that perhaps Somali parents were were refusing this MMR vaccine more frequently than other parents. So this analysis was really to test like is that really the case? Yeah. Instead of kind of making decisions based on those those reports, it mm-hmm. was like do our data actually show this in the registry? Mm-hmm. But then they did. They did. Yeah. This is where we started with anecdotal. Right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Those anecdotal reports yeah, that you yeah, take as cool. data, and um, we were able to back it up with real data using our mm-hmm. MIC immunization records and our vital statistics records. I think it's kind of interesting that okay, so the the registry itself is sort of like a repository for the data, but then it's how that data get or how those data get used is kind of like the next step in the process. Mm-hmm. So if you so you work at the Minnesota Department of Health and you you have these results what kind of happens next other than you present at the era national meeting (laughs) well that's when our outreach team takes Mm -hmm. over we put these findings into action by responding at first in a way that's fairly typical for state or local public health providers you know a broad education pieces media public service announcements targeted at the Somali community we did make them you know culture specific and we also did a lot of travel PSAs we developed a video interview with of a Somali mother of a child who almost died of measles and we also developed a diverse media project. So we uh, uh, created messages with multiple ethnic and racial media outlets, uh, radio announcements, you know, news articles and ads. And those were, you know, well received. We knew that they were being viewed. They had a lot of visibility within the community. But the Somali immunization rates by 24 months continued to decline for MMR. And so we decided to regroup, the outreach team decided to regroup. We saw another drop in 2012 in rates because, you know, we had the ability to monitor these rates now because of this analysis. So the immunization program decided to regroup and refocus those outreach efforts. They developed a cross-division team. So I think one of the things I talked about during my presentation yesterday was how we can get so siloed even within a state health department. You know, that's why I was talking about vital statistics, how important that partnership was. We're in totally different divisions. So our partnership with them was great, but this cross-divisional team aimed at outreach was also more effective than just the immunization program going at it alone. Also, our immunization uh, program hired Somali staff So an RN who was with our children and youth with special health needs and an outreach worker for the immunization program itself. So that was that was really helpful because, you know, we had more culturally competent and members of the community to lend legitimacy to these outreach efforts. 
So uh, those outreach staff that I was talking about conducted several key informant interviews, met with Somali health professionals and spiritual leaders, attended lots of community events to talk about immunization and autism concerns and so on with Somali parents. And a lot of what they gleaned from those casual conversations with parents was really important. It gave some context for the data and to why we kept seeing it drop. So a couple of things that our outreach team talked about was that parents, Somali parents, say that they refuse MMR because they're told by family and friends that MMR causes autism. You know, word of mouth and, you know, community sources of information are very important to this community. And so they're told not to get the triple letter vaccine because it's the vaccine that will stop children from talking. Our Somali outreach staff definitely showed us that Somali Minnesotan parents are strongly influenced by their own communities. And there is a lack of information and a real good information and an abundance of misinformation readily available to the community. Mm -hmm. So that that was a really huge barrier to overcome. We currently have a new work plan for the immunization outreach team, and this team has just done so much work to re-engage leadership in the community and pull in interested health professionals who want to help close this gap. We're doing work, this outreach team is doing work to re-engage the community, both at the parent and the leadership levels, so doing some parent peer-to-peer trainings and then forming the Somali Public Health Advisors Group that includes health professionals and educators, parents and faith leaders. So having that buy-in from the community is really key, I think. And then I think the outreach team is also currently conducting activities to prepare for and mitigate a potential outbreak with the Somali community if measles, if another measles outbreak happens. You know, they want to increase community awareness about this disease, some internal planning and outbreak response plan dissemination with with our local public health uh, partners, and then continued outreach with our Somali partners and members of the community. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's it's a lot of work for our Somali outreach staff, and I just want to acknowledge them at this point. Lynn Batar, clinical consultant, and Hindi Omar, Fatuma Urshat, uh, they uh, Hindi is our current outreach worker in the immunization program. Fatuma used to work with us too in that same position. And Ali Ashkir, she was the RN. And I've heard her speak so many times. And she's just a wonderful, brilliant speaker, very magnetic. So they have done so much of this outreach work with the data that I analyzed. So it's great to see them in action. What about this project really jumped out at you? Oh, yeah. So uh, it was always my passion, you know, just going into public health to address gaps in health equity and to bring everybody to true equity. You know, it's it's ridiculous that with the finest health system in the world that it costs us so much and does so little for our most vulnerable. So I, I liked this analysis. It brought me back to tap into that passion and that initial drive to be a part of public health. So um, yeah, that's why I was so excited by it. And that's why, you know, it's funny, this is not my primary skill. My primary skill is in quality improvement and training and outreach. It's mostly like going out there in the field and doing AFIX visits and talking to providers. This sort of analysis of looking at gaps and spending my time in front of SAS clicking on things and being excited by the numbers, that's not normally what I do, but I just, this project, you know, forced me to learn new skills and it just was very satisfying. Well, I think we want to take a look at making sure that we're not continuing to overwrite 
or lose any race data already in MIC. Mm. So what I, I think I touched on this a little earlier, but I'll just say it again. Our race and ethnicity data that we're storing in the MIC tables appears to be overwritten by incoming messages from providers. So um, we get race and ethnicity data from vitals for new babies, but when new providers send in shots for those babies, they might send us a race or ethnicity uh, as other or unknown, and that other or unknown seems to either erase or overwrite whatever categories we've captured from vitals. Mm. So our first goal will be to create new fields to lock in the vitals race and ethnicity. So those won't be touched by data exchange or any incoming stuff from providers. So that'll be goal number one. Goal number two will be to figure out why things are being overwritten. (laughs) (laughs) And then outside of the whole data quality data exchange piece is to expand this analysis and look at different race and ethnicity categories and different age groups and different vaccines. All with an eye towards understanding what groups might be most vulnerable to a potential outbreak. Yeah, absolutely. And heading that off beforehand, you know, working with our outreach staff to see if there's something we can do for any other gaps that we Mm -hmm. see. That's really, really fascinating. Yeah. Um, think you've answered all of the questions that I had before that I had prepared before, but is there any anything else you think would be important for people to know about the project or any just things you would like to share? Yeah. Well, I did mention that this was a successful project and something we want to carry out in the future. But a couple of other of our lessons learned was to, you know, checking the quality of the race and ethnicity data already in the IIS. So if you want to do this with your own states or own jurisdictions IIS, make sure you check the quality of that race and ethnicity data. And if, you know, you don't already develop a good relationship with your vital stats people, because they're the ones that have the ability to give you back some of those race and ethnicity data. Pretty Um, vital. Yeah, literally. (laughs) Nice joke. Nice data joke. Very good. (laughs) But in addition, you know, race and ethnicity and health equity can be potentially sensitive. Um, You want to avoid using accusatory and stigmatizing language regarding community beliefs and views. You know, the Somali community has been a part of Minnesotan life just recently, like within the last, you know, 10, 20 years, recently in the grand scheme of things, I guess. Um, And they're an important part of our modern city and our diverse city. And we want to make sure that there's no stigmatization. You know, you don't need that. And so you don't, you want to avoid having that kind of language. You want to also have a culturally competent team to use this data, communicate about it, and really (laughs) recruiting and working with members of the impacted community is definitely going to make any outreach way more effective. I am so glad we have Osley as a partner. I'm so glad we had Fatuma and we currently have Hindi because they are the ones that do the the groundwork, the fieldwork. They're the ones with the legitimacy being Somali themselves. And you know, they're they're mothers and grandmothers too. You know, they don't want to see an outbreak in their own community that would affect their children and their friends' children and their families. A very special thanks to Suda Seti from the Minnesota Department of Health. Suda, I really enjoyed our conversation and I admire your commitment to health equity. The music in this episode was composed by Kevin McLeod, including our theme music called Carnival Intrigue. Thanks also go to Piper Hale, Kathleen Taraski, and the great folks at ERA. Sita also had some people to thank. It was our communications team that really helped, specifically our uh, person tasked to deal with all of our mixed stuff. 
web presentations, communications, what have you. Elena Rosenberg Carlson, who helped me shape my data and my bullet points into the arc of a narrative. She's really great at that. And then my coworker, Miriam Muscaplatt, who told me not to be scared of SAS and just sit down and do it. <laughs> <laughs> she helped me a lot yeah, with the specific nitty gritty of the nice. analysis. But like I said, it was new to me. So she was a great help. And then my boss, Erin Roche, our IIS manager, she really like encouraged me to take this analysis and run with it. Guess what? Dr. David Ross is coming back for an upcoming episode. He's agreed to answer questions from you, our listeners. Got a question for Dave about informatics, maybe about public health in general? Record yourself asking your question and email the audio file to podcast at phii.org. Please send your questions by June 1st. Again, that email address is podcast at phii.org. Thanks for listening to Inform Me Informatics, which is a project of the Public Health Informatics Institute and the Informatics Academy. Come find out more at phii.org. This is Jessica Hill, and you've been informed. Podcast is going in a very unexpected direction. What? <laughs>